friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled Art Deficit Disorder. Oh, welcome. How is your week going? I am enjoying a gorgeous, beautiful, sunny Austin day. It's a little chilly this morning, but I will take it. It's going to be in the 60s today, chilly in the evenings, wonderful time of year. Um, Maybe a little cold for some, but I'm really loving it more than normal. On the tail of last summer, it was a hot one here (laughs) and everyone in Austin and Texas for that matter, I think is relishing this winter extra extra because of that. Um, thank you all for joining today. Um, I want to start off by sharing with you that if you are enjoying this podcast, if you are finding yourself sharing the content with other people, if you're finding yourself gravitating back here from time to time, please consider leaving us a review, leaving me a review, (laughs) um, This is honestly the biggest way right now for other folks to um, find this podcast quicker and easier. Um, This podcast is, it's a sweet little gem in my life right now. I'm really enjoying recording it. And at some point, this podcast will probably begin utilizing some more contemporary forms of marketing. Um, but in the meantime, you are the, the form. <laughs> so thank you in advance. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for showing up and spending time with me once a week. And if you're enjoying it, if you're not enjoying sh- shit, <laughs> if you have thoughts about how it should be better, um, consider leaving any kind of review. I truly welcome it. Thank you. Thank you in advance. I was inspired to record today's episode because I have been experiencing a influx, an influx, maybe an influx, also just a reemergence of ADHD. I was diagnosed with ADHD in my mid-20s and at that time did what most of my peers did and also quite a few folks still do although I I think fewer do now than when I was younger Um, I went on medication Um, I was school teaching Um, it was at that it was when I started school teaching that I began to really struggle with my focus and the medication was tremendously helpful um, insofar as my focus went. <laughs> it did what it was supposed to do. Um, but, I, but I stopped taking it when I moved to Austin. And I want to talk a little bit about why that happened, what I learned, at least in regards to my particular relationship with a label like ADHD, um, why I don't have to take medication anymore, what type of relationship I recultivated <laughs> with 
this so-called label, and I, I don't even mean to say so-called label. I mean, it's, I was just talking with another artist friend of mine yesterday about how important labels can be. Um, they can be so validating. Um, it was actually really validating for me to have someone in the medical profession look at me and say, this is a thing. It is a real thing. I think you have this thing and here's a way forward. Um, and it, at that time, that, that was incredibly powerful and helpful and meaningful. And eventually, I started to recontextualize and reframe my relationship to that label. So I want to talk a little bit about that later in this episode. But I, I really wanted to bring it up early on in the episode because I have experienced a re-emergence of a lot of the more undesirable parts of ADHD. I would say um, up until Brayden was born, I had through changing my lifestyle, um, changing my artwork, (laughs) changing the larger space in which I create my life and my work and my relationships, I was able to experience what I would call not having ADHD. (laughs) Um, And then my, you know, my body changed tremendously after having Brayden. Um, And a lot of the things that I was doing to experience not ADHD became tremendously difficult. And I have started to notice a reemergence of a lot of the things that were troubling me, especially in my younger years. And one of them really has manifested in this podcast. I wonder if some of you have noticed it. Um, I years, not years ago, like maybe this time last year, actually, I was at an event and there I was talking with someone who is a regular listener of this podcast, relatively regular listener. And she said, do you just wing those episodes? Cause they're amazing. It was a wonderful compliment. Um, and it was meaningful to me because yes, I do wing them. I have some notes, <laughs> but generally, um, I would describe the process of recording this podcast more like channeling, you know, and just whatever comes up kind of comes up. And um, that meant a lot to me because, you know, especially when I was 80, considered more ADHD, when I was struggling more with with what that experience was like, um, that ability to channel, that ability to weave a meaningful narrative with the things that were organically kind of popping up into my head in a way that made sense to other people was impossible for me. And so getting that compliment meant a lot. It's one of the things that I think this podcast does well. And in the last month or definitely a few months, I have started to notice that ability waning and maybe other people are thinking what are you talking about I don't notice that Um, but I suspect most of the folks listening to this podcast are pretty sensitive I know I'm sensitive I have some podcasts I regularly listen to and I can almost always tell like oh my podcaster my the host of my favorite podcast must be going through something because there's just a difference in their delivery, there's something in the energy. And that has been really noticeable to me. I, I've been 
really looking at this reemergence and doing my best to roll with it and and it's been triggering you know i i don't have fond memories <laughs> of this experience from my younger years um and so i've been thinking a lot about it reflecting a lot on it in the last few months and i wanted to talk about it in this podcast today because it occurred to me that I would imagine there's a fair number of artists that have been formally or not formally diagnosed with some type of attention disorder. I I don't love the words deficit or disorder (laughs) to describe the experience I have. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But for all intents and purposes, because those are words that are used in the collective right now, I suppose they make sense to use at this moment. For those who are, I I suspect a lot of people listening to a podcast like this could relate to having some type of experience like that. And if they don't relate to that specific experience, I think everyone listening to a podcast like this, and maybe arguably everyone on the planet, (laughs) has an experience of feeling disordered in some way. Maybe not ADHD, but in some way. Uh, name your acronym, right? CPTSD, like um, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety. Um, we could go you know, on and on and on. The DSM Manual of Mental Health Disorders has 300 disorders and counting. Y'all, they keep adding them every new version. <laughs> um, and I wanted to record this episode because I do think most people listening to this can relate to feeling disordered in some way. And I'm wondering if we could recontextualize that a little bit. Like, like, are we all on board with the idea that humans are so disordered that we need a manual of 300 diseases and 300 labels to identify all of these individual or seemingly individual things that people are experiencing or is there something else going on or is there just a different and perhaps more helpful way to look at this and so this episode is you know going to be a thought experiment about that take what resonates with you and leave the rest so for better or for worse we are evolved to fit in Um, fitting in was survival for our ancestors. Um, There has been this whole sort of revision of some of Sigmund Freud's work about survival of, was it Sigmund Freud? Yeah, survival of the fittest. No, I don't know, y'all. I'm not, uh, that's, this is not my superpower, but we all have heard survival of the fittest. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it wasn't Freud. Who was it? Anyway, um, there has been a revision in you know a more modern revision of the survival of the fittest ideology, and that is that more likely it was survival of the most socialized, right? Like if you were connected with a tribe, you were gonna survive. I remember first experiencing this in modern day in my mid-20s when I went to Haiti. We don't really experience this 
to quite the same extent as countries with lack of infrastructure. Um, it does still happen here, 100%. Like the more connected you are, the more supported you are by a large tribe, the safer you feel, the better you will fare. Um, however, I remember when I went to Haiti and we were in a little village just across the border from the Dominican Republic. And I don't remember how the conversation happened, but I, I remember overhearing the owner of this school that we were you know, helping. There was a bunch of like work projects going on. And, you know, I almost feel like giving a disclaimer here because I feel like work abroad trips have become very chic and in vogue and often can be kind of toxic and unhelpful. And, um, you know, there was definitely some elements of that at play with this organization too, but I will say, um, the, the particular, nonprofit that I went with that was supporting this school was pretty lovely and that they were, you know, boots on the ground, working elbow to elbow with Haitians to do the things they most needed. And a lot of it was like, you know, school improvements, supporting the teachers, you know, bringing um, supplies for kids, things like this. And I remember one day listening to the owner of the school, the founder of the school, talking with some of the nonprofit folks about crime in the village. And it was really interesting. I remember him saying, oh, you know, crime just isn't really a thing here. You know, not like Port-au-Prince, which is the capital of Haiti. He said, you know, there, yes, it's, it's very much a thing. But in little villages, if you, you know, there's, there's immediate motivation to work within your tribe. <laughs> At, at every expense possible. If you do something to violate one of your tribe in a way like committing a crime against them and you're discovered, you're outed. Like you will be kicked out of the village. And this like this would happen even now in this little tiny place in Haiti. And he said, if that happens, you're you know, you're dead. Like you you you're gone. And so this it was my first experience with with that idea because I was raised in this very modernized community and and country <laughs> where you know you could conceivably just you know scrap together scrap yourself together try to find a job you know try to find you know anything I live in your car like <laughs> I don't know it's not I, I definitely don't want to suggest that it's necessarily easy here because um, it's not but there's something about being in the, the the relative middle of nowhere in a tiny village of a few hundred people and getting outed that is totally different than for us here in the states and that was I guess I share this because that's somewhat our experience, our ancestors' experience was somewhat like that, if not entirely like that. And that's baked in our DNA. So we feel that no matter how much we may desire to do something counter to that. You know, I have desires to stand out and do things differently that are very strong as an artist all the time. In many ways, this podcast is an example of that. And I am constantly having to contend with this voice in my head of how are they going to receive this? How are they going to 
like it? Are they going to like it? Are they going to hate it? Are they going to hate you? And there's this feeling of being very unsafe when you're putting stuff out into the world that you don't know how it's going to be received. And I suspect a huge chunk of that comes from these ancestral roots, right? But also fitting in is a very artistic idea. Um, It's an incredibly artistic idea. When we're making art, of any kind, there is always this consideration when we're choosing a note, when we're choosing a color, when we're choosing a form, when we're choosing, you know, a document (laughs) or a business component or whatever decision we might be making creatively in our work. When we're making those choices, there's always this consideration of how is this thing going to fit into the larger thing that I'm creating? It's a very artistic idea. Um, One of the artists that I first really gravitated to in my high school years when I started doing trips to the Cleveland Art Museum with my high school was Ansem Kiefer. And he is a German artist who did these uh, most... Most, if not all, of his works were about German history, specifically this really unflinching perspective on the Holocaust and 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 German history at large. Like he was like, we're gonna look at this. Like he started creating work when he really felt like the country should be deeply looking at itself. <laughs> and his work is this very in your face um commentary on what Germany did during the Holocaust and if you you can google his work it's very abstract I remember the piece of the Cleveland Museum of Art was this huge I think I've talked about it in a a former podcast episode it was huge it was way taller than us it was probably like I mean I don't know certainly like 12 13 14 feet tall very very wide 20 feet wide maybe and it was very abstract lots of neutrals and he would use all kinds of different materials like straw and clay and lead and chemicals and in this particular piece there was lots of like metal and ass and acid and then of course paint and other things and it was a barren landscape with railroad tracks going off into the distance and that was it and the thing that was really I remember the docent talking about how because he had incorporated acidic components into the piece it would regularly decompose and like chunks would fall into the gallery floor and like they'd come in in the morning and turn on the lights and there would be like art on the floor (laughs) and they would um sometimes if you see an ensemble kefir in person he instructs the gallery to leave it there and they'll like rope off a a section of the floor i remember seeing a piece uh, i don't know if it was in columbus and it was a, a much taller piece like two stories tall perhaps and Um, It was corrosive as well. And these big chunks of metal and glass would fall and they roped off this huge chunk of floor so that no one would get in the way of this collapsing piece. And that was part of the artwork, you know? So his works are gritty. They're, um, They're full of despair and corrosion and feelings of decay and intentionally so. And so I was thinking like, like in some ways our world is also an artwork, right? And if we're using an artwork like Kiefer's pieces 
as a metaphor for like a larger lived experience like the world like the global community that we live in what would happen if someone just came along and they just like put a rainbow in there <laughs> like if the docents opened up the Cleveland Museum of Art one morning and there was a, a rainbow in that piece I mean I suppose there could be like for a hundred different people there would probably be a hundred different reactions to an action like that but I think we could all agree that one similar sense that all of us would have, even if we had a different feeling about it, would be that the rainbow didn't fit. <laughs> like maybe we would like that. Maybe we wouldn't like that. But generally, there's probably a consensus that a rainbow in a kefir painting would look weird. It just would, it would look like it didn't fit. And then there's, there would probably be like a whole array of like opinions about that. Like this is bullshit. This is amazing and everything in between. But you know, it would, it would just, and, and because the rainbow would be smaller, right. And, and the key for peace would be, you know, like a whole world, (laughs) you know, it, it would, it, it would exacerbate the difference of the rainbow, right? Like, If suddenly the whole painting became a rainbow and there was just like two or three inches of kefir painting left, then it would change, right? But like a little tiny rainbow in a kefir painting would look out of place. And this isn't about one being better than the other, one being better than the other. I think immediately people have biases and like cultural context around a kefir painting and a rainbow, right? And since the kefir painting is about the Holocaust and a rainbow is like a symbol of hope and promise and good weather <laughs> or whatever, um, there may be some like assumptions that I in this podcast am making value judgments. And so I want to say at this stage in the episode, I'm definitely not, at least not to the extent that I'm aware of, there may be some like unconscious biases around these um choices that I'm making in describing this but um, this for me this isn't about the rainbow being better and the holocaust painting being worse although you know I could see why that assumption would be made Um, yes a holocaust painting is tremendously dark in a lot of ways and um, artists like Kiefer were tremendously important um, to 20th century making because Um, artists are one of their roles not their only role but one of their roles is to help the culture look at itself and this was a German painter who is like I this is my role like I am here to help my country look at itself and right now itself is ugly you know that that is a very beautiful thing even if the artwork itself conjures up lots of not good feelings you know But I wanted to use the contrast of the rainbow in a kefir painting because I feel like this also happens in the world. (laughs) And for better or for worse, when you are looking, if you were living in a kefir painting, anything that comes into that painting is now going to be referenced 
against that painting, right? So, and it causes those things to get labeled in certain ways. For example, a rainbow in a kefir painting doesn't fit. And we could conceive of zooming down into that painting and asking the rainbow, how do you feel in here? And the rainbow would also probably say, I don't fit here. And I feel weird about it. And the rest of the painting might say, yeah, we don't like it either. <laughs> like this is like, take this thing out of here. This thing is disordered. This thing is a problem. And this happens in the world with people too. And I really experienced this as a child because pretty early on, I started to have the beginnings of focus problems. ADHD is something that's so much more noticeable in boys um, because they tend to externalize their um, attention deficits or so-called attention deficits. Um, it's, it's something that is really noticeable in their external behavior. Girls tend to internalize it. So I was very quiet and very still. And so I looked focused, but my inside was all over the place. And so it was just, it wasn't caught. And not only was it not caught by family or friends or teachers, it wasn't even caught by me. I was like, well, no one's mad at me. So I guess I'm good. But by the time I hit third grade, I stopped being able to get good grades like I started to really slip and and absorbed a lot of the cultural assumptions around slipping grades <laughs> like that I wasn't trying hard enough that if I wanted to do you know that I was lazy that I wasn't working hard enough that I didn't care enough you know and you know it would probably break my teachers hearts or my parents hearts and my friends and family's hearts to know that I absorbed those things from them but they absorb those things from their friends and family and teachers like this is just these are just assumptions that kind of trickle down i'm certain some pretty toxic assumptions have just been dumped onto my son by me <laughs> unintentionally already in the two short years of his life right and so by the time I hit 25 and I was feeling like I, I, I can't hide this anymore, there's something truly going wrong, um, it wasn't a surprise to me to have someone say, oh, this is, this is more than just your will here. Like, this is a disorder. And I felt, I felt like a problem. I felt like I didn't fit well. Like, I felt like working a nine to five, being organized, being on time, being all of the things that good humans are supposed to be. I felt like I really struggled with a lot of them, a lot of the main good human traits. <laughs> and I wonder if a lot of people listening to this podcast can relate to feeling like that. Maybe not all the time, maybe just sometimes. Um, but I do think that it's a rare person to not experience feeling like I don't, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I know I, but I, I think I thought I was going to be a little bit different when I was a kid, right? Like, I think I thought this experience here in this body on this planet wasn't going to feel so disordered, <laughs> you know, that was my experience at least. And, you know, so I, I started taking medication and um, you know, I remember 
I remember being so grateful for the reprieve from the the scattered it was it was just this tremendous level of scatteredness that completely upended my life and I was so relieved to have some reprieve from that that it made all of the other things worth it for a little while but you know there was just tremendous side effects to a drug like this um I almost hesitate to call things in this class medications because I don't know if I view them as medicine anymore. There was no healing happening in my body. (laughs) It was just a a symptom management tool. And that's more in the realm of drug. You know, it was a drug. And there was all kinds of side effects. I remember I used to, and I mean, I'm sure some folks listening to this are on drugs like this and can relate to the side effects I'm about to describe. But, you know, I would take this thing. I was instructed to take this stuff in the morning before school started, before work. And I quickly realized I couldn't do that because it would make me so nauseous that I could barely make it through lunch without wanting to throw up. But then of course I, I couldn't throw up because I wasn't actually sick. And that side effect was so difficult for me that I started taking it before bed And I would be so exhausted after a day of school teaching and often then waiting tables after school teaching that I would successfully fall asleep. But this (laughs) this drug would also really wire you and amp you up, which feels counterintuitive and something that I learned when you when you're taking something when you're taking a substance for ADHD, um, often how they work is through this process of amping you up and weirdly. For someone with ADHD, that has the effect of calming down and focusing the nervous system and the brain. So, but it would also wake me up at like 3 a.m. <laughs> and I, I would get in the habit of waking up at 3 a.m. like a shot, like a, like a bullet out of a shotgun, just throwing on my workout clothes and like all of my teaching stuff and going to like the gym at like 4 5 a.m in the morning doing the early early cycling class and then showing up at school at like 6 30 in the morning and having this like super productive morning and I loved that I loved the way that looked I loved how you know my teacher friends and principal were like look at Borelli she's so on it you know <laughs> she's so... but they're there, you know, that of course wasn't terribly sustainable because I wasn't getting a lot of sleep and I started to have all kinds of immune problems. Like I began getting so sick all of the time and hearing sort of this narrative from all of my friends and family of like, oh, welcome to being a school teacher. That's normal. And yes, yes, but no. (laughs) Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the myth of normal and also the author of that book, The Myth of Normal, Gabor Mate, a little later in this episode because, um, you know, it, it may not be just because something's common doesn't make it normal. And so because it was common for a lot of teachers to be sick, everyone kept telling me that it was normal what I was experiencing. And, and looking back, I realized, oh, no, I, I wasn't I was not normal. I was so, so, so disordered in a totally different way. And I remember dating 
this really lovely man as I was moving to Austin and he helped me move down here. And I remember he and I dated while I was on these drugs and when I went off of them. And I I went off of them honestly, truly, only because I moved to a totally new city and I didn't have a psychologist here. I didn't have a psychiatrist to prescribe a whole new batch (laughs) of prescriptions. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to go off this stuff for a few months until I can find a doctor. And I remember he was a huge part of the reason why I decided to wait, do a wait and see method because he he took one look at me like a few weeks into being off this stuff. And he said, man, I like you a lot better. <laughs> he said, like, he said, I know that you really enjoyed that focus, but you were like, just like, you know, the edge of a sword, just like, Rah! and he said, this Becca is flowy Becca. Like, I, I don't know. He goes, maybe you do discover that you need to go back. He said, but why don't you just see? And I learned a tremendous amount in the upcoming years um, about my particular relationship with ADHD. I discovered um, a few years after moving to Austin that I was tremendously lactose intolerant. I've talked about this in other episodes. And when I stopped eating dairy and subsequently also started eating much more organic and clean ingredients and completely eliminated all artificial everything 100% like I view it I I view eating red number five as like the same as eating lead and it's not the same as eating lead by the way (laughs) it's much it's much safer than eating lead and also it's a carcinogen it's um and its effect on my body was tremendous when I stopped eating artificial everything and dairy um the the most negative effects of my ADHD and my disordered experience of life sort of faded away. And it was at that time that I started to have a totally different perspective on my ADHD. And there's a lot, a lot of new and upcoming, um, not upcoming, there's, there's more fresh voices around this perspective shift, not just with ADHD, but with everything. And a lot of it's happening in holistic and functional medicine, where the research coming out of these fields is saying, is saying actually, ADHD isn't a disorder. It isn't necessarily a disordered person. ADHD is a natural and normal response to a very disordered world, right? Like, humans were not actually evolved to eat red number five. And so in that way, my response to red number five is arguably healthier than someone who can eat it without a response. And this is something that Jiddu Krishnamurti um, famously said in his book, Think on These Things. He said, it's not a measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. And when you start thinking, I mean, I remember when I first read that, I was probably 20. And I felt so seen and also relieved because up until that point, I was convinced that I was the issue. And here was this person, this very spiritually revered person saying what if it's the other way 
what if you are healthy and you are having a healthy response to a really sick situation? This is also very present in art making, right? Like if you have a key for painting and you put a rainbow in it, the rainbow can look very wrong. (laughs) And I want to go back to this idea that the key for painting is not a declaration on bad and the rainbow isn't a declaration on good. But maybe it's helpful at this point in the episode to talk about some larger themes about where we want to go when we make stuff, when we make our art, when we make our lives, when we make our relationships. We're always making decisions about where we think we want to go. And oftentimes, I sometimes wonder, and maybe people can relate to this, if this if this isn't what we want, like this experience on planet Earth isn't what we want, why is it what we have? Like if this isn't what we wanted to make, why did we make it? <laughs> and I, I think there's so many answers to that question, by the way. But I suspect one of the answers that's worth digging into a little bit in this episode is that oftentimes what looks normal and what fits with the current work isn't where we want to go anymore but we keep making what fits because we have a biological imperative to do that right like an ensemble key for painting was such an amazing fit for the time in which it was created and arguably is still a good fit by the way the themes that he made art on are very relevant to Israel-Palestine and all kinds of other things that are still happening. And is that where we want to go? I actually, maybe it seems like I have a baked in answer to that question when I ask it, but I don't. I just, I truly mean, where is it that we want to go? Is it more of that type of painting? Or is it more rainbows? Again, it, maybe it seems like I have an answer like, oh, of course more rainbows. <laughs> no, not necessarily, right? But are we being conscious about where it is that we say we want to go? I'm going to kind of leave that more abstract question thread like sort of hanging for a minute and we'll circle back around. But I think it's important to think about that because a lot of times what feels like it fits and what feels like the best thing to make going forward is actually just more of the same. It's more of what we don't need anymore. Like it was something that served us before, but it doesn't anymore. And we're unconsciously reproducing it in our artwork and life and wondering why we keep getting what we don't want. I know this may feel Like it's like, how is this relevant to ADHD? Well, (laughs) like sort of piggybacking on this idea of (laughs) people with so-called disordered systems (laughs) actually having a healthy response to a disordered environment. Um, What if then 
using that idea as sort of a foundation, we could build some different perspectives on top of that around so-called disordered people. I remember recently watching a Netflix special that Shane Gillis did and his comedy, he's a comedian and he's, I would say maybe not like a comedian whose style I would typically gravitate towards, um, but he's getting a lot of attention because he's good. Like, I feel like the artist in me is incredibly comfortable with consuming and interacting with artistry that isn't necessarily a good fit for me, even even when, it, especially when it's not a good fit for me, but when I know it's good. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, your ideas, meh, but you're good. Like, I just, that's my personal opinion of Shane Gillis. You might have a different perspective. You ask, you know, on either side of the issue. But he does this beautiful ske- sketch about his nephew who has Down syndrome. And, <laughs> and he says this thing that is, that was in a lot of ways, a flipping or a recontextualizing of this disordered narrative that we had, that we have. Um, he said, yeah, you know, I know that people who've experienced this, um, you know, having children with Down syndrome, he's, you know, referencing just families, just generally, this is very hard. He said, I know it's hard because I live in it. Like I see it in my own family. He said, and he said, my nephew is easily one of the best humans on the planet like it's one of the best versions of human we have (laughs) and I remember like sort of that's stopping me in my tracks and I also suspect stopping the audience in its tracks and of course everyone laughs this like warm bubbly laughter because they realize he's right um people with this so-called disorder (laughs) are actually in complete alignment with what we say we want as a planet. Like infinitely loving, always so joyful, (laughs) um, very positive. (laughs) Like um, it doesn't mean they don't have negative feelings. It doesn't mean that there isn't like a spectrum, right? But just generally these so-called disordered people are ironically much closer to what we say we want collectively and how interesting that that is considered a disorder would would a different way of looking at it be that they're more functional than the rest of us I think that's such an artistic and interesting question to ask. Similarly, am I disordered for reacting to red number five or cow milk with tons of hormones? Or am I actually more functional because I'm like the canary, my body is now like the canary in the coal mine for everyone else. Um, it's, It's an interesting artistic question. Sometimes the people that feel like they don't fit um, don't fit for a very good reason. This idea has circulated around the internet for a long time. If you don't fit here, perhaps it's because you're here 
to make something different, right? If the rainbow doesn't fit in the kefir painting, maybe it's because it's not supposed to be a kefir painting. Maybe it's supposed to be a rainbow painting. (laughs) Maybe it's in the kefir painting to expand upon its rainbowness. Uh, And I'm only saying that as a maybe, maybe not, you know, but I wonder if this type of recontextualizing is important right now. I'm wondering if a lot of people are getting messages about their so-called disorderedness that prevents them from making this stuff that they're here to make. I don't fit. The stuff that I have to say doesn't fit. The stuff that I want to make doesn't fit. It's not safe. I'm weird. I have a disorder. I need to take some drugs. By the way, this episode is also similarly not a slam on taking medication for any single thing. And I know for a lot of people, medication... Like I, I know that I per- personally <laughs> tend to call substances like the one I took for ADHD, I prefer to call them a drug. I don't view them as medication. And also I know um, I've had like this conversation with my sister who works in mental health. <laughs> she um, works for the Cleveland Police Department as a mental health um, specialist. She does ride alongs with her partner. Um, and makes house calls to places where a mental health professional is needed. And she is of the opinion that those types of things are 100% medication. And so, I, and I agree with her. Like, there, there is a both and with this topic. And if you have feelings like that, that's valid. Um, I, so, I... I want to I want to make the case for what it means to feel out of place and what if it we feel out of place because we are interacting with people and objects as fragmented from the artwork in which they reside. Is that a helpful way to talk about objects and people? Is it helpful to talk about the rainbow as a problem completely separate from the fact that it's in a kefir painting? No, they're connected. (laughs) Is the rainbow a problem in if you like take it out of the kefir painting and put it into a painting with unicorns now suddenly it like flows a little bit right (laughs) and I think there is a sense by the way that a lot of people have and increasing numbers of people have of what like I don't think I belong here like I feel like I should be in a totally different place and time dimension or something because this like who I am does not fit here in this current situation in history if you know if that's how you feel you're not alone and 
I wonder if that's how the rainbow feels. Again, this isn't a value judgment. This isn't making you good and the rainbow good and the key for painting bad and the world bad. Um, The world that we have as trashed and as difficult as it might seem at the moment was a version of a version of artistry that worked, believe it or not, for a long time, or it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> it would never have been created if it didn't on some level work. And now it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't. We see increasingly how it's not working. We're being pushed in all different levels and in all different ways to create something different. And when you are in an artwork or in a system that needs change, You know, change starts to pop up and, it, and change looks disordered. Someone with ADHD looks disordered. Someone with bipolar disorder looks disordered. Somebody with anxiety looks like they have a problem when in fact they, in my, in my personal belief, <laughs> are incredibly healthy. And they're here to do something with that. So I want to loop back around to ADHD for a minute. And I want to talk about what I did a little bit more in depth to move forward with this disorder. So I mentioned that I made some pretty hefty diet changes, but also made some pretty big lifestyle changes. I started to discover that I had to move my body, had to, um, every day in significant ways. Um, I had to sweat. I had to have resistance. I had to have lots of cardio. Um, I also discovered that I had to have lots of friend time and alone time like copious amounts. (laughs) I also discovered that a lot of chemical interactions with my body were a huge issue. And I stopped using all kinds of certain different products. (laughs) I went very crunchy granola in that particular regard (laughs) in our household cleaners and my cosmetics, all of those things. Um, I also found that I couldn't go into certain environments anymore. Um, Environments, you know, that when I was younger, I had no context for being an issue. You know, that my sensitivity to red number five and to dairy and to chemicals also extended to like clubs. Like I remember the last time I went to a downtown Austin club was my last year of grad school with one of my grad school girlfriends and she's an artist and a teacher and a mama now and I remember her looking at me and we looked at each other and we were like oh my god why the fuck are we here this is awful um and it wasn't that I was having a totally different experience um I've always disliked that environment my whole life it's just that I exposed myself to it because that's what young people did and I thought I was supposed to as well And the way that I felt when I left there, I had no realization was connected to there to begin with. Like feeling bad after a club didn't make any sense to me. I just assumed that I was feeling bad because it was my fault. It was my issue. It didn't occur to me that the energy in a club (laughs) 
was something I was also sensitive to. And so I began to cultivate this very different lifestyle for my friends to the point where sometimes I still, to this day, even living in Austin with a lot of like-minded folks, feel a little bit lonely around because the extent to which I live so that I can feel very healthy is very different from other people. And for a long time, until, until pretty recently, in fact, I, was, I kind of felt like I was creating a problem for other folks. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to my therapist a few months ago, and he asked me, like, do you ever feel like when you're out at a restaurant with a bunch of friends, like, do you ever feel bitter that you can't eat most of the things? Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I almost never eat at restaurants anymore is because most restaurants, even high-end ones, use highly processed inflammatory oils, industrial oils. So even healthy food restaurants can make me feel terrible. And so if I go out with friends to eat, I often just sip on a tea or something. And he asked me, he said, does that make you feel frustrated? And, you know, for most of my 30s, it did. It really did. And then as I began to experience this... I don't know if transcendence is the right word, <laughs> but this elevate this really elevated experience in my body, I didn't feel better anymore. I suddenly started to feel sorry for them um, because I know a lot of my friends. I know a lot of them have challenges that they don't realize are connected to X, Y, and Z. And I also know from my own journey that it's not helpful to proselytize <laughs> so I I really don't unless people are curious and then that's different um, and I realized as I was talking to my therapist about this oh my goodness like this particular lifestyle that I've cultivated feels really weird because there's not that many people doing it but it is probably the future the lifestyle that I've cultivated is probably much closer to the collective artwork that we're trying to make as a planet right now, right? Low impact on the food system, organic, no chemicals, um, home cooking away, away from um, big, loud, noisy, chaotic environments, <laughs> back into nature. Like a lot of the things that I've been working on in my life just so I could not have it just so I could stop having ADHD symptoms y'all <laughs> is surprisingly and maybe also not surprisingly connected to where I think we say we want to go as a planet and and also maybe not maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking that's not where I want to go <laughs> take me to a club give me lots of booze give me lots of cake and y'all if that's how you feel, there is a reason for it. <laughs> there is absolutely a reason for it. We are creating exactly what we should be, I, I believe, um, at any given time. Um, this episode, the content of this episode, is my personal experience making my, my life and my work and my art. And I wonder 
if bits and pieces and chunks of it can help or support you in the way that you're doing the same. I I have noticed in the last few episodes that I've been recording that there hasn't felt like this big action item going forward. Like you should leave this episode and go do blah, 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 blah with it. Um, more, it feels like, is there something baked into the content of this conversation that we're having that can rewire unhealthy patterns that you have around how you exist in this earth artwork that we have? Are you disordered? Do you have deficits? Do I have attention deficit disorder or is the world existing in an art deficit disorder, right? Um, Insofar as that really good art is in harmony with itself, with whatever it's trying to achieve, by the way, because if you look at a key for painting, it doesn't particularly look harmonious. It looks very disordered and chaotic and grungy. But insofar as what it's trying to convey about German history, it is in deep harmony (laughs) and alignment, right? Art at its core wants to do that in some way. And it may be very different in, it may be very different from one hour to the next, but, but always there's this sense of alignment, I believe, that is baked into the, the root bed of great art making. And in that way, is it more helpful? Is it more streamlined? Is it more conducive to say that we have an artistically disordered world instead of saying that all of its people are messed up in 300 different ways? (laughs) You know, I don't know. Again, again, maybe a thought experiment to think about. I don't know if it's unhelpful to leave so much open-ended in this episode, and I've increasingly been doing that in this podcast, but I think it's because I find myself pontificating on subjects which, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not. I, I'm an expert on lines and colors and shapes and balance and composition, and this podcast isn't about that. <laughs> this podcast is about the way that the principles and elements of design can connect to the larger lived experience that we're all having. And that means that I end up talking about topics that I truly am not an expert in. And that should be said. Um, It should be said that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, And I don't believe that that means that I shouldn't talk about it. Um, I do think it just means that I should be honest in my journey and sort of groping forward in the dark around some of these things. And asking some of those questions is helping me a lot right now, even though I don't know the answers to them. I I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I've been experiencing this resurgence of ADHD symptoms. And initially, I had a bunch of like old stuff come up like oh you're such an ass like why um like 
the other day I lost my keys and I think since Brayden's been born I lost my keys like four times y'all and this probably sounds silly you're probably thinking oh I've lost my keys that many times well for me losing huge components of my lived life (laughs) my like lived experience like car keys like a wallet whatever like a purse um those were things that when I um figured out my inflammation stopped happening I stopped losing things I, I never lost things and then in the last two years it has just come back and it's come back in my talking and in my thinking and in my moving through my day to day and immediately it f- has felt like a problem. And what I'm starting to revisit again for a second time with a slightly different vantage point now is, am I the problem? Or is there something in the larger artwork, in my larger body, in the larger planet, in my larger relationships that is causing me to have this natural disordered response? this healthy disordered response because my ADHD is one of my favorite things about me. Like when I am healthy and clean and grounded and not inflamed, my ability, the way that my brain structures things is fucking cool. Like I really think that it also doesn't take much (laughs) to knock it out of fucking cool into this looks chaotic. (laughs) And I have had to renegotiate how I look at that. And that is very artistic. That is artistry in life, right? Um, If a rainbow doesn't fit into a painting about the Holocaust, is it the Holocaust painting's problem? Is it the rainbow's problem? Or is it just that there is a tension between these two things seemingly not fitting. (sighs) I I suspect that in some ways this episode also is pretty ADHD in its application. Um, and I have been intentionally just sort of continuing to record in spite of that. Um, because I don't think that it's realistic for me to completely stop making stuff when I'm going through a challenging time. Um, and maybe that's relevant for folks listening to this as well. I don't know. I'm not sure. I like that I get to talk about some of the messier stuff in my work in life in real time in this podcast Um, because I think that when other folks do the same for me in their podcasts or in their blogs or in, in their books, it's, I mean, isn't that what Leonard Cohen said? The cracks are how the light gets in. And this has been a wild crack for for me, for sure. Um, Feeling as if I am 
the problem. And how does that feeling keep me from making stuff? Does it keep you from making stuff? Um, When in fact, maybe the, the weird, disjointed, disordered stuff that you're making is exactly what the artwork needs right now. And you know, am I, am I making the argument that a key for painting needs a rainbow, by the way? No, I'm not. <laughs> um, it's a metaphor, y'all. <laughs> um, all of it's a metaphor. So if at any point you're thinking that I'm slamming on Kiefer's paintings by suggesting we put a rainbow in there, that's 100% not what I'm suggesting. It's all a metaphor. Um, if we say collectively that we want to go in a different artistic direction, is it helpful to be saying to a lot of the people that are doing that for us, like our artists, like our sensitive folks, like our neurotypical folks? (laughs) Is it helpful to use words like disorder and deficit and disability with them when it's not disordered and it's not disabled, when in fact what they're doing is very healthy in response to a planet artwork that has become quite toxic? Glennon Doyle talks about this in her recent book, Untamed. Um, and she also, and also Ishmael, the book by Daniel Quinn, talks about this too. That when you see an animal that's been in captivity its whole life, pacing back and forth in its enclosure, there's not a recognition of why that pacing is happening. But there's something deep inside of that animal that says, I don't, I don't fit here. Like, I don't belong here. I should be somewhere else. And I think a lot of people, increasingly, larger and larger groups of people on planet Earth are having a version of that experience right now. But unlike the animal in the zoo, you are here to create more wild in captivity. (laughs) We are here to rewild and bring back into harmony this very disharmonious art deficit world (laughs) that we've created. You know, cheetahs and lions and tigers don't have the ability to bring Africa and Asia into the zoo, but we do. We do. And it's through the stuff that we make. And when you bring bits of the wild into the zoo, it looks crazy. It looks like it doesn't fit and it's also where we it's also where a lot of us say that we want to go maybe maybe not everybody maybe for some people that's still incredibly scary right it's why if you if you're a family who's expecting a baby and you find out that that baby has down syndrome you immediately feel tons of grief and stress because you know that baby's not going to fit it's not going to fit And you're going to have to now help navigate that. And that's hard. It's inarguably very hard. And when you look 
Just like Shane Gillis said, when you look at that baby and the way that that baby who has this so-called disorder interacts with the world, it is so much more of where we say we want to go as a human race. And in that way, people that have disorders don't have disorders. (laughs) And maybe some folks are thinking, well, that's all fine and good, Borelli. I love that you're using this example of Down syndrome, but what about like sociopaths and narcissists and people who have disorders that are incredibly violent, destructive, and awful. Yeah, that one's harder. Um, Maybe we don't look at those people and say, oh, that's what we think, that's what the world should look more like. Um, Those people are like the key for painting in some ways. (laughs) They're the mirror. Like, um, this toxic world is being reflected off of me. And in some ways that is also very beautiful. If we choose it, if we choose it, it doesn't mean there isn't a significant both and (laughs) that it's true and also very, very hard and unfair and destructive, you know? But they're the canaries in the coal mine too. They're saying, hey, this isn't working. Um, Interestingly, there is all kinds of fascinating stuff. Like if you start deep diving into podcasts and functional and holistic medicine, there's all kinds of research showing that every single disorder on the face of this planet is connected to inflammation and inflammation in every instance is connected to the larger artwork, the larger earth, the larger environment. Inflammation is a healthy, natural response to something that is toxic. And I have been changed by this realization. It has caused me to raise my son in a way that is so supportive. Also, I know (laughs) that by the time he has his own kids, if he chooses it, um, there's going to be even more information. But for now, it gives me tremendous hope that more and more people are starting to look at themselves and say, oh, I'm not the problem. I'm not the disordered one. I'm not the one in deficit here. Um, I'm really healthy. And this this is written about extensively in Gabor Mate's book, Myth of Normal, um, where he talks about what normal means in the medical establishment. Like he talks about the pH of blood and there's this very narrow window in which you can live. And if the pH of your blood changes too much in either direction, you die. That's the medical definition of normal. And so when we use normal in other contexts in our lived artwork together on this planet, We assume that we're using a similar definition and we're not. We're saying common. I have really started noticing this with my kiddo. He's two. He melts down. I personally think he melts down more than he should. And every mama and papa friend, (laughs) including family members of mine and people in his school groups and things like that, have consistently been telling me, including Jason, like, he's two, this is normal. And 
what I keep thinking in my head, and again, not an expert. So this is just mama intuition, totally anecdotal. But my intuition is saying it's common for two-year-olds to melt down all the time. Is it common to this extent? I don't think so. I think that little two-year-olds are experiencing an unprecedented level. We, we know that they're experiencing like unprecedented levels of plastics in the water supply, in their bodies, chemicals in their water supply, in their bodies, in their food. Um, not surprisingly, my ADHD was manageable until the year 2000. It, from, from the year 2000 when I was 20 onwards, my ADHD went off the chain. And by the time I was 25, I could barely function in a working environment. And I found out years later <laughs> that in the year 2000, that was the year that um, farmers, industrial farmers, started spraying glyphosate, aka Roundup, on after-harvest crops. You know, so prior to 2000, they would treat the soil with it. But after the year 2000, Monsanto started marketing Roundup as an after-harvest desiccant. So if you harvest a bunch of wheat and then you spray the glyphosate on the wheat after-harvest directly onto food, <laughs> it keeps it from getting moldy, makes it last longer, you can you know get more money for it. And there is this, I mean, you can Google this, y'all. There is this huge body of research showing all kinds of chronic illnesses exploding after 2000. Um, And I don't think it's a coincidence that my ADHD, which had been kind of like manageable until that point, suddenly became unmanageable. These are the things that two-year-olds now are dealing with. Like we we don't feed Brayden traditional grains almost ever unless we're at a restaurant and he's starving. Um, and still, and so, and I suspect that's one of the reasons why, you know, our kid looks much less tantrumy than his peers. And still from my sensitive perspective, he's dealing with a lot, a lot. And is it fair to tell him he's, he's disordered for that? Um, these are questions that we're grappling with as artists and as a global community right now. And I don't know if we need to have any answers to them. I think my goal for this episode as an artist and for you as an artist is to reframe the rainbow in the key for painting. Reframe yourself in the larger earth that we are living in. Are you a problem? Do you not fit? Or are you exactly where you're supposed to be? And the reason that you feel like you don't fit is because you're bringing more of something different with you. You're moving the artwork in a different direction. And that feels really uncomfortable in the beginning. It feels so uncomfortable in the beginning. But how are we going to clean up this planet if we don't start increasingly having people who react to that? Right? Um... What motivation do we have to stop using glyphosate in our food if we don't start having bodies that retaliate from that, you know? I feel in some ways lucky that I was one of, I mean, kids with allergies in the 80s were like, the 70s and 80s were kind of like at the beginning of that. Because, you know, prior to the 70s, 
allergies were almost not a thing because there wasn't the level of toxins in the environment that have now led to such chronic inflammation leading to allergies. And I do think some of the most sensitive kids were the first ones to start showing this. And I really think that artists and sensitive folks are one and the same. You are the rainbow in the kefir painting. If you feel like you don't fit, but what if, what if there's a reason that you don't fit? I don't know. <sighs> Welcome to ADHD inspired secret sauce. That's where we're at. Take what resonates with you and leave the rest. Um, I love y'all and I appreciate y'all and I look forward to next week. Um, stay tuned. We're going to have some things coming down the pike in the spring with some art offerings and the like. Yeah. Housekeeping's coming at the end. I know I should do it in the beginning, but I just think of it at the end. So I suppose that's, I suppose that's intentional. I suppose it means that the folks that are running with me through this entire marathon to the end are also then getting the, the nuggets of what's to come. And that is important. Until next time, y'all. Peace.